I'm almost ready. Okay. Good morning. See all of you this morning. You would turn your Bibles, please, to Second Chronicles chapter 14. Again, a reminder, we are studying the kings of Judah. And this is going to take us right into June, um, this series. Now, so far we've stuttered, studied Rehoboam, and depending on how you want to pronounce it, Abijah, or Bijah, if you, if you speak Hebrew. Um, that's actually how it's said, I think. But, um, so now we're going to look at King Asa. And so I've asked just the, the guys to put up a slide there. We're not going to talk. The, the things like this that much, but just give you a perspective so you keep in mind where we are in time. Um, king Asa was around 913, 911 when he became king, and it lasted 40 years. And he is the great-grandson of Solomon. He is the son of Abijah. So I turn me to Second Chronicles chapter 14. We're going to read the first couple verses. By the way, um, the good news is this morning King Asa covers three chapters. We are not going to sit here and read three chapters. You could relax if you looked ahead and say, oh, no, we're going to read three chapters. We are not going to read three chapters. It will probably help me kill some time. Beginning in verse 1. Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land had rest for ten years. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Let's commit our time to the Lord. Father God, we thank you so much, as always, uh, just on an individual basis, but also as a corporate uh, time to study your word, to grow in the knowledge of Christ, to deepen our relationship with you and who you are, and the things that you've done historically that shows who you are and what your plan is, and the sovereignty, and the mercy, and the righteousness of God. Uh, We see who you are through your scriptures. And so we thank you for this. As we study King Asa today, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us. Our hearts would grow towards you. Uh, we would learn from King Asa uh, what to do and what not to do. And it will have an impact on our lives as we live for you in a way that glorifies you. And we thank you and ask you to bless this time now in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So it starts off pretty good. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. I don't want to ruin the story for you, but it doesn't end up that way. We'll get to that later. But he starts off pretty good. And as the great-grandson of Solomon, he's the first one that they can say this about. It doesn't say that about Rehoboam. And it doesn't say that about his father. Um, the problem is, if you recall, David was a man after God's own heart, but he had some weaknesses mostly with women. His son Solomon was given wisdom, but did not have a heart after God like his father did. And he had a bigger problem with women. And as he married women from many cultures and kingdoms, he brought their idols into Israel. And these altars and things are set up all throughout the kingdom. And what do people do? They go to them and not to the Lord God. So Rehoboam continues this practice of his father, because even Solomon worshipped at these Uh, at these temples and these idols. And Abijah, 
follows suit of his father. Abijah did some good things, but he did not have a heart after God like David. Asa does. I don't know where Asa got it from, because there's nothing close enough in the timeline to have learned directly from David. So something spurs Asa to look at what's going on and say, this is not right here. He's, he's obviously seen the split, right? We went through the fact that the kingdom became divided because of Rehoboam and Jeroboam and, and their battles. So the kingdom becomes split. Israel is the upper kingdom, like ten of the, of the tribes, and Judah breaks off. The important thing about Judah that we want to remember is Judah is where Jerusalem is. So it's the place of actual true worship. And we look at what Asa does. That, what does he do that is good and right? He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the ashram and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. He also took out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. Now, the word of God is always perfect. And it would have been just as perfect if it said Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord and put a period. It would have been the perfect word of God, and it would have been true. And it would have been perfect and true if it said Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of God. What Scripture reveals to us here is in the eyes of the Lord, his God. Somehow, despite all the corruption of his father and grandfather and great-grandfather and all the idolatry and, and false worship that's going on that he's grown up in, he recognizes that God is the God, and because of that, he's his God. And I think that's the key catalyst for Asa stepping forward and the courage it takes to do these things. It's one thing to say, I'm not going to do that anymore, right? I realize this is wrong, maybe this is handed down, and we're not going to do that anymore. That's hard enough. But to be a king and go through your whole kingdom and say, all of this stuff that we've been doing through three kings now, we're chucking it all. We're chucking it all. You've got to have resistance, and you're going to have um, some challenges to get that done. But Asa knows the Lord as his God. And that's where you get to have the heart like David, the heart after God. It's, it's, it's the ability to know what God loves and what God doesn't love and to step out and do what is right. Where does this idea of doing what is good and right come from? Well, actually it comes back a long, 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 long time ago. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy, as you know, is the time of Moses. 500 years earlier, 500 or so years earlier, is where this idea of doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord comes from. In Deuteronomy 12, beginning in verse 1, These are the statutes that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. Dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. 
You shall crop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of the place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. I'm going to jump down. Let's look at verse 28. We'll skip all that. I encourage you to read it, though. Uh, I have some time this week. Definitely read the rest of the chapter. But let's start with um, 26. But the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings you shall take, and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose, and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. 500 years later, here comes Asa, and he realizes, maybe he's, somebody's given him the word. The scripture doesn't tell us how he got it. But Asa realizes things are not right in Judah. Let's turn back to Second Chronicles. And so he takes the steps to clean these things out. And I think it's important for us to recognize he doesn't... I have this way of speaking all the time. Sometimes I feel funny when I do it all the time. But the Bible doesn't say Asa cleaned up Judah and moves on. Everything is listed that he has to clean up. Why does the Scripture give us such detail? Why does it need to tell us the foreign altars and the high places and the pillars and the ashram and uh, out of all the cities, the high places and the incense altars, along with the commandment to um, seek the Lord? Because we have to pay attention to detail. You know, when you give your life to Christ and you say, God, I'm going to follow you now and I want to do what is good and right, in the eyes of you, my God, my Lord, you've got to pay attention to the detail. I was going to miss some stuff. There's going to be things that we don't clean up in our life. And we're going to end up not doing what is good and right. Asa inherits a kingdom that over generations has become more and more and more uh, corrupt and ungodly. So he has more work to do. You know, it started out with Solomon marrying some women from other kingdoms and then building some altars to their gods. And then Solomon participating in the worship of those things. And a couple generations later, it's prevalent throughout the whole kingdom. We're, not even, we're just talking about Judah, which is two tribes, right? Israel is a complete mess up in the north. So we're not even going to look at them right now. But it's important to recognize in our lives You've got to find those altars of foreign gods. You've got to find those high places that have been built up or handed down. What are the sacred pillars in our life that we think are important, but really are a form of ungodliness? What are the wooden images? What are these things that we need to clean up if we want to be those who do what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord? Let me ask you this. Do we even consider the fact that we need to do 
what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord? Is that a conscious thought? God, what do I need to do in your eyes that is good and right? What is not good and right that needs to be purged from my life, from my home? I'm going to get to that in a minute. In, in all of this, in the cleaning and in the purging and in the restor- restoration of Judah and restoring uh, the temple and the, and, the, and the observance there, he also says he commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. One of the things you can be promised about God, that you can be assured of, is those who seek him will find him. It's not a matter of existing with God, and it's more than just a recognition that God is real, but it is a life spent seeking God. Learning how he reveals himself to us in deeper, more intimate ways. It's not just follow God. That's a big part of it. Asa is saying, a part of the, the seek the Lord, right, is to seek the ways of the Lord, understand His laws, commandments, and follow it. But because He's our God, He's my God, He's your God, He's the intimate, personal God, we get to seek Him out in a relational way. We get to seek God out and see who He really is. And that's a two-way street. Because as you get to know God, He's going to reveal things about yourself that are not good and right. And you know what? It's good. That's good. Because He does it in love. He does it in a way that says, you know what? This is something that's between you and me. Now that you sought me, and you see who I am, you see what I love, you've wanted to know, now I've revealed it to you. But it's not true in you. If you want to get closer to me, you've got to push that out. You've got to get that altar out. You've got to get that pillar out. You've got to clean up. What we discover when we seek God is the truth of Scripture. His ways are not our ways. And I rejoice in that. I don't know about you. The more I learn about God and see how unlike man he is and how perfect he is, I get excited. I go, this is my God. This is my perfect God. Draw with me to Isaiah 57. Isaiah chapter 57. No, Josh. Esther. Earpiece. Thank you. Um, trying to do a little hand sign with my son and it didn't work. Okay, so <laughs> Isaiah 57. <clears throat> For thus, uh, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also 
with him who was of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. That's the God that we seek. The God who when we seek and we see how unworthy we are to be in his presence, it makes us have a deeper appreciation of the blood of the Lamb that makes it possible for us to seek this God and to come before the presence of this God. And this is the God that we know. He will dwell with us. He does not cast us out and push us aside. So a thorough cleaning, a thorough cleaning is necessary. And it's important when we consider these things, not just in Judah, but as the application in our own lives, and maybe even in the church itself, right? They're not just abominations that make God angry, but they're obstacles between us and God. He has to get all these things out. It's more than Asa saying, we will not observe those things anymore. He has to tear them down. Their presence, their presence is going to be an obstacle for the people if they continue there. If they continue there. So, as I said before, a thorough purge needs to happen. Sometimes we feel like maybe just spiritually we don't feel right. What was deep and intimate with God is not there right now. Maybe we just come to a realization it's not been as deep and intimate as it could be. That's the time to purge. That's the time to clean house. That's the time to be honest and trust God in his honesty. He says that's got to go in your life. You've got to get rid of it. What I like about Asa is that unlike, if you remember Rehoboam, he becomes king and he says, what should I do? And he goes to the elders and then he goes to his friends and he makes the wrong choice. Who does Asa seek? God alone. Asa doesn't need any affirmation to do what is right. He knows what the right thing to do is. When you know what the right thing to do is, the time to do it is when you know it. When you realize that there's an altar or a pillar or a high place or a place of incense, some kind of obstacle between you and God, the time to purge it is immediate. You don't need to go, hey, what do you think? Hey, what do you think? You know, I got this thing, but I'm not sure. You know what? You know. If, you, if you're willing to take that step, then in your heart you know. You know. So purge it. Purge it. The right thing to do is to be done when we know it needs to be done. Asa didn't lag. Asa didn't need counsel. We don't either. And what's beautiful, if I switch back to Second Chronicles, what happens after Asa does this? And the kingdom had rest under him. The kingdom had rest. Hmm. You know, spiritual 
peace cannot exist in a polluted environment. Spiritual peace is not going to exist in a contaminated environment. It can't. Two things cannot fight for control in your heart, in your life, or even in the church. There needs to be a purity. So when he does these things, the kingdom has rest under him. Look what he does next in verse 6. Next, he put his feet up, he lit a pipe and said, Woo! That was hard. Let's chill. No. He built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. I'm going to be transparent. For me, and all that I studied in Asa, this was probably the most convicting personally, because I will admit to you, when things get quiet, I like to put my feet up. I like to take a break. I think God gave them rest for 10 years. God gave him rest for 10 years, it said at the beginning of the chapter, to fortify the cities. Times of rest, times of peace, times of no conflict, as much as we enjoy them, and we should take time to rest um, as you need to. So don't take me the wrong way. But it's the time to fortify. It's the time to prepare for what's going to come that you don't know what's going to come. It's been a struggle my whole spiritual life. It's, it's something in my nature. If I have a hole in my roof, drives my wife nuts. I'll know i got to fix it. When it's raining, I'll fix it. Pray for her. It'll drive me crazy. I know i got to do it. It's not raining, though. I admit it. It's a problem for me. I'm totally honest. But the truth is, God gives us rest from the spiritual battles and the problems of life at times. They could be 10 years. They could be a week. I can't promise you what you're going to get. But I will promise you that he's going to give you rest so you can fortify your city. Do we take the time to fortify our lives, to build up our spiritual life, or do we wait till the crisis comes and then goes, God, where are you? It's, it's me, Greg. I know you haven't heard from me in like a really long time, but I got a problem now. Or do we continually build up our relationship with God on a daily basis so that that storm doesn't terrify us? So that that crisis does not cripple us. But we look at it and go, my God has this. But if you don't fortify, you're, you're not going to be ready for it. Do we fortify our homes? Do we take the time when things are good to train our children, to teach our children, to protect our children in our home? Or do we wait until things are messed up and go, ooh, we've got to talk to somebody? There's no promise that everything's going to go well. But there is opportunity to fortify and prepare. Rest is not to be wasted, but we need to use it for our preparation. When we look at this thing with Asa, we're going to get into another conflict in a second. But he becomes king, he cleans up, and God gives him ten years of rest. And Asa, in his wisdom, fortifies his cities. And then we're going to have a conflict here with Ethiopia. And he's going to have no conflict 
for 35 years. Did Asa know how long that 10-year rest was going to be? Did he wait till nine years and six months and go, oh, you know what, I better get this done? He didn't. He didn't know if he was going to have war in a year. He didn't know if Israel was going to attack. He didn't know Syria, Ethiopia. He had no idea what was going to come at him or when. But you know what he did? He said, something's going to happen. Because that's life. Brothers and sisters, that's life. Stuff is going to come. What we need to do is take time that's rest and fortify. But we have to show some wisdom and some discernment, right? Because there's always stuff. Really, there's always stuff. Do you look at some things that are just things and go, oh, I got this thing. Oh my gosh, this thing. And then when a real thing comes, it's like so much bigger. Or do we take the things that are things and just go, eh, it's just a thing. I know what a big thing is. There's things, and then there's things. Which one are you going to worry about? You can't worry about things and act like they're things because now you're missing the opportunity to fortify because you're making a mountain out of a molehill. You're wasting your time that you should be fortifying for the thing comes when you're spending your time on just things. They're little things. Stuff happens in life. Don't fret. Don't stress. But fortify. Prepare for the things that come. Now, the crisis does come. Let's read verse 7. He said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. Okay, here's his fortification. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him, and he has given us peace on every side. So he recognizes where his peace is coming from. He's got the right attitude. He's got the good perspective. So they built and they prospered. The busyness helps them prosper. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, armed with large shields and spears, and 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. So he's got an army. Now Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and came as far as Merishah. And Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zavatha and Merishah. Now here's the kicker. Ready? Asa sees the problem before him. He has built his army. He's prepared everything. And now comes the crisis, and what does he do? Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, There is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. You see what Asa gets to do in this crisis because God is his God and they have the intimate relationship? He gets to say, Hey, God, you are our God. And these who come up against us are coming up against you too. Do you realize that we have that position? Every battle, every attack, every struggle, it's us and God. It's not us asking, hey, God, do you have a minute? We who are in Christ, 
take those things on with him. All throughout this, this, this Old Testament, one of the things I've always loved is from Moses and through David and through all these great men, God, for your name's sake, let us have victory. We are marked by the blood of the Lamb. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So when attack comes against us, it comes against the one whose name we bear. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. We are not alone. And we can call out to God. Say, God, if you have victory in this, you have victory in this. And all will know that you were the one who had victory. Don't take these things on alone. Fortify with God. Fortify by God's word. And then face it with God. Because we are in God. He is our protector. He is our shield. And yet we love to step out and take it on on our own. It's silly. Let me just tell you that uh, God wins. The 300,000, so what's 300,000, right? 300,000 and 280,000 from Benjamin. They defeated the million man Ethiopian army with little trouble. In fact, they chased them down, wiped them out, and plundered. They made out pretty good. And then they returned to Jerusalem. Now, chapter 15. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Odin. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, in all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was, out the, was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Odin, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh and Simeon, who were residing with them. For great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with them. And they sacrificed to the Lord. I'm not sure if um, Azariah is referring to the time of the judges or just the last couple generations. It could have been either one or both. But he's encouraging Asa, hey, look, don't forget what happened in the past. When people turned away from God, they had trouble, and their lives were a mess, and the kingdom was a mess. You right now are right with God. You are good with God, and all is going well with you. Don't forget why. 
That's important to remember. What they were lacking, according to Azariah, they were without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. Teaching is necessary. Knowing the Word of God is necessary. Consistent, regular study, learning, growing. That's what keeps us in right with God. Because in God's sovereignty, when we became born again, He left the flesh to battle. I don't know anyone who doesn't wish that he didn't, but that is true. So it's an ongoing process to stay true. You can't just say, I've read that, I learned it, I'm good, let's go fishing. We have to stay in, that's not attack on fishermen who aren't here. That's a truth that we have to hold to because it's not natural. And if we don't stay focused and committed to the Word of God on a regular basis, learning and growing and studying, our natural tendencies are going to win out. And those altars come back up, and those pillars come back up, and those high places come back up. What's really cool with what Asa is doing, what God is doing through Asa, is how some of the cities from Israel have left and are coming to Judah. They see what God is doing. Who gets the glory? God. Who is exalted? God. Who's making the difference? God. Who is drawing people to himself? God. They're not coming to Asa. They're coming to a place where God is. That's what happens when God is exalted. That's what happens when people humble themselves and say, God, your way is the way it will be done. This way it will be done in my home. It will be done in my church. We will not follow men. We will follow the word of God. And those who are righteous will come. But this is going to lead to a problem. And we're going to jump over. So they do a lot of sacrificing the rest of this chapter, if you had a chance to read it. And the chapter ends with, there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. So he had 10 good years, he had a problem, and then he had 20-something years. I, I'm not going to do the math, people laugh at me. All right, but now look what happens. In the 36th year, remember now, people from Israel are coming to Judah. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. The king of Israel see what God is doing and go, wait a minute, guys, we're messed up. We need to do like Judah is doing. Look what God is doing in Judah, and we need to follow Judah and bring God back. <laughs> no. He puts up a wall and says nobody can go to Judah. Sound familiar? That's what the enemy of God does. The enemy of God says, I'm not going to permit them to come to where God is. When that happens, that means God's doing a good thing. See, where there's no strife, there's nothing going on. Where there's strife, God's working. 
Because there's one who wants to defeat what God does and get in the way. So this is a testimony to what God is doing in Judah. And this is where Asa goes from he could have been a great king to he was just a good king. Asa took silver and gold, verse 2, from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, There is a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. After all, all God has done, after all God has done in Judah, God stood up for Judah when Ethiopia, a foreign country, came. But now division among God's old people, the Jews, split kingdom. Does he turn to God and say, God, unite me with my brothers? God, stop this strife so we can be one? He goes to a foreign country. He says, let's make a treaty and you break your deal with him. What ends up happening is it succeeds. What Asa wanted from the king of Syria actually happens. Israel breaks down what they had built up to keep the people from going to Judah. And Judah goes and pillages everything and takes it and uses it for their, for their own needs. So it sounds like it was a good idea. Asa said, hey, wait a minute. There's a problem here. This guy's blocking people, so I'm going to pay this guy to have a conflict with that guy. And boom, it worked. Good idea, right? It's not a good idea. The outcome doesn't matter. That's where the church falls apart so many times throughout history and today. We focus on the outcome we want, not in trusting God. If Asa turned to God, God could have said, no problem, I will turn the heart or I will fortify you and you will defeat him. God could have done it in any number of ways. And God could have said, no, I'm going to let that stand for now and you're going to have to deal with it. But I'm God and you're going to have to trust me. Asa never even went to God. Asa took it into his hands. Okay, he got the outcome he wanted. And not only that, not only did he not turn to God, he took the treasures that were committed to God and he paid this man off with them. He took what was committed to God and he paid off a foreign king to go against his brothers, the other Jews. Why do we have such a hard time waiting on God? Why do we get so impatient and just feel like I'm going to take this matter into my own hands? If I do this, this will happen. I know for sure. So it must be the right thing to do. It's not always. A great flag to make you stop what you're doing before you take this step, what are you giving up to accomplish this? Are you giving up that which is supposed to be committed to God? Are you giving up that which is committed to God 
using it for an ungodly driven purpose to get the outcome you want. Right there, you've got to go, wait a minute, I'm making a bad decision here. Is it resources you've committed to God? Is it time you've committed to God? You know, there are justified times to say, there's a need here and God's going to understand and I'm going to miss church, right? Somebody call me up and needs me to drive them to the hospital. I'm not going to say, okay, at 1215, I'll come pick you up. You're going to go take care of when he's taken care of. But there are a lot of times where maybe what you've committed to God, which is the time to worship God, you need to stick to and not sacrifice that for something else that you think is going to be good. It's not as good. Are there resources? Are there finances? Are there skills? There's so many things that are supposed to belong to God. And sometimes we even commit to God. And then when time comes up, we go, well, God will understand. God will want me to use this for this problem. I don't think so. Not if it's been committed to him. Not if it's been committed to him. I wonder if they had too much time after they fortified and they had peace and they just got comfortable. They didn't follow the rebuke and the exhortation of uh, Azaria, Azaria. Because, you know, that's what happens, right? We just we forget after a while. We do it all the time. We get so excited when God does something great. We give Him all the glory. We're sincere. Our intentions are good. Our heart is in the right place. Then a lot of time goes by before we need God to do that again. And then we kind of forget what God did. And we forgot how God did it. Was Asa's failure because the problem was with Israel and not a foreign country? I don't know. All I know is that we are not to be unequally yoked when we take on things. We go to God, fellow believers, and we trust God. We do not partner with the ungodly. We do not give away what is committed to God. The outcome does not matter. We've got to get that through our heads. The outcome is not what matters. What matters is trust in God and faith and hope and the knowledge that He is good. It's not what we want the outcome to be. Turn me to Isaiah 41, please. A couple of verses for encouragement before we close. Isaiah 41 and verse 10. The thing to keep in mind, and I think this is part of the rebuke of Azariah to Asa, when he says, if you seek God, he'll be found. If you forsake him, he's going to forsake you. God is with us all the time, and I don't want to contradict what I've said, but I'm going to tell you, if you say... I don't need you, God. I'm going to do it my way. He's going to let you. He's going to let you. You know? Sometimes as a parent, you see your kid doing something, you go, ooh, that's going to hurt. 
Maybe that's the way he needs to learn it. Sometimes you go, that's going to hurt too much. I'm going to stop before you're like harmed. Sometimes that big wheel at the top of the stairs has just got to ride its course and see what happens and you learn your lesson, you know? Isaiah 41.10 Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you what you want. He doesn't say what you think has to happen, I promise. He says, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's what we need. That's what we need. It's, I had a laugh. Um, I put this in my notes before James spoke last week. I was already working on this. And he shared this verse, and so I'm going to say that God wants us to hear this again. In 1 Samuel 12:22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. So I'm going to close and we're going to do a corporate prayer. Here's our uh, our uh, takeaways. Josh, you got a slide for me? All right. Do what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord our God. Fortify your city. Number one, let's remember, that includes purifying, cleansing, and seeking Him. Fortify your city, personally and in your home, your business, whatever you need to do. Fortify it. We need to trust God in our battles, for they are His also. And let us not yoke with the world and misuse what is consecrated to Him based on the outcome as opposed to the faith. I'm going to close the message in prayer, and then we're going to go to corporate prayer for about 15 minutes, and I will, uh, I'll just close that time as well when the time is right. So let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you for, again, your word this morning. We thank you for being the God who, once we are yours, we are yours forever. And we know that you will not forsake us or leave us. But let us not forsake or leave you. Let us not turn to the world. Let us not trust in treasures and buying our way out of things with whatever means are necessary. But let us trust you to be our God who will do what is right and what is good and make, make our hearts desire what is good and right and to seek you all our days. Father, thank you again for this time in your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.